Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, where we talk to and learn from the people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. I'm your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Day, New York. So tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Brian Thompson, and I'm a car designer. And I design basically anything with wings and wheels and an interior space. That's what I like to say. Well, you say you're a car designer, but I've seen you on TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, was on, I was on a fun reality TV show uh, where we got to, uh, they called it a car design show, but it wasn't. We uh, customized uh, a bunch of cars and, uh, and, and, and made things out of them. But yeah, that was fun. And that show was Motor City Masters, yes. right? It was called Motor City Masters. Um, it was on True TV. Um, you know, it was a, a very nascent stage of that network. So I like to say it's, it was a nationwide TV show that no one watched. <laughs> well, I watched uh, I watched a lot of it. I think it was really cool. It was kind of the um, uh, uh, Project Runway kind yeah. of thing, right? That was the model. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was very much Project Runway um, in the way that they constructed it. Um, and, uh, you know, it was one of those things where, like any reality TV show, uh, at first there's a lot of riffraff. Uh, and then as you get down to the core talent, it really got fun once you kind of focused on what the work was. Right. I, I really actually had a great time. I, I loved it. And you and you were the runner-up, right? Yes. Um, we, uh, let's see. So uh, Camilo Pardo, who did the 4GT, uh, won, and I won second place. So what we... Uh, we we did was we we he got a hundred something thousand dollars and I got a seventy five thousand dollar Camaro which uh, I, I the reason I did the show was to create a scholarship for LGBT students so I created the scholarship I'm still waiting for Camilo to uh, dispose of the car so that I can fund it with that money uh, however I have put my own funds into it so it, it does exist I just don't have enough money to give a student uh, anything meaningful yet so this year is about uh, either getting that car sold so I can fund it or uh, adding my own more of my own money to it. That's good. Yeah, so, yeah. And we will we will get it out. I really, that's something I'm I, I'm really passionate about. So, so you mentioned uh, this LGBT uh, student fund. I mean, tell us a little bit about, uh, I don't know where we're going to go there so quickly, but I mean, it seems very disruptive that, uh, you know, you're not a hetero car, <laughs> car designer. <laughs> I, it's funny. I, it's funny that you said it too. I, I, I wouldn't expect to go there so quickly either <laughs> in the sense that I, I grew up very like, uh, being gay was very much, I never had a coming out moment. You know, it just wasn't, and my mom just, it wasn't a big deal. Uh, so I never really thought about it um, uh, much. But, um, you know, I think something happens as you get, well, some things, when you get older and you look back, you do realize that um, there are moments in your life that were homophobia, but you were mm. so dumb and naive, you didn't know it at mm. the time. And, you know, I was very lucky to have an upbringing that was very accepting. Um, but then when my mom passed away, there were some struggles in my family with me being gay that I wasn't hadn't been made aware of mm. until I hit about 35. And what that did for me is it, it made me have empathy for um, a young kid who might go through that. Mm. At 35, you know who you are, kind right. of. Right, you're figured something's out. So when you find out that there's some uh, homophobia and some upset about that in your family, you you it kind of it's it's really hurtful. But you also have enough landmarks to be like, okay, that's them. This is me, and I'm I'm still me. But when you're 16, uh, I understand why kids kill themselves mm. because if you if, if that's at home uh, and you have that, uh, you really can be uh, lose sight of what's important and and feel very rejected so uh, that's why I decided to become more of an activist because mm -hmm. I, um, I, I I I don't I, I want like I don't ever, I don't want anybody to ever feel that way and they should know like you know anybody who is 
uh, achieve some success uh, in this field, they should always the, the 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 talent they have should be the focus. So, so anyway. well, I want to I want to move into some of your successes. And okay. Maybe you, you, no, no, it's great, and maybe yeah. you can tie some of uh, um, how you grew up to these. So. Let's start out with one of the first big successes you have now, which is the Airstream Nest. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, Airstream Nest, I actually, I have you, Rob, to thank for this. Um, this is probably why I'm so you know happy to see you again, because it's been a while, and uh, you brought that to me. Um, I did? You did? <laughs> yeah. I think I sent you, did I send you an email? <laughs> well, and you called, yeah, you told me about this project. Um, the, the story of the Airstream Nest is, so Airstream has been a client of mine for almost, uh, well, since about 2003, I guess, or four, long time. Mm. Um, the the trailer I always wanted to do for them is basically the Airstream Nest. I've always wanted to evolve Airstream into uh, new materials from the aviation industry, which is their route, and do something new for them. So Airstream has been a client of mine for almost, uh, well, since about 2003, I guess, or four, long time. Mm. The trailer I always wanted to do for them is basically the Airstream Nest. I've always wanted to evolve Airstream into uh, new materials from the aviation industry, which is their route, and do something new for them. Um, I've drawn nests since I was a, a, a little uh, kid. Mm. Anyway, long story short, it, it wasn't a product that they could really understand. I don't know that I'd ever have the sort of gall to call up a company and be like, hey, your product is great, but it, yeah, the styling sucks. Let me restyle it for you. Right. <laughs> but with that sort of encouragement, I did call. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I talked to uh, Robert Johans, the, the CEO of the company, and this new startup, and I said, hey, love this thing. Would love to style it for you. Mm. Love to restyle it yeah. for you. And um, he didn't hang up. Talk a little bit. You, you mentioned Go With Two. So that's mm -hmm. a very... Yes. Uh, I don't know if other brands do it, but I know it's unique to Nissan. Maybe yeah. talk a little bit about the process of designing a car. Sure. Or, or a truck in this sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you... So car design is, is an interesting field in the sense that you are perpetually competing with and then leading or following your colleagues. Mm. And so um, it's a design where your your ego really has to go out the door because you will win and you will lose and you really have to work with these people all, uh, in a lot of different mm. configurations. So uh, the process goes uh, like this. You have a, a series of designers assigned to a project. They compete with each other. They all put up proposals and then you start to narrow down and select and you do some clay models and you do some full size models. But go with two is when you're down to the final two designs. One of those two designs are going to be what's on the road. Uh, and so you end up with two designs and you then you have a bake-off and you show them and there's a big meeting and people come in and they put on their ties for that one day that they wear ties and then they decide and then everybody goes and has a party or goes and cries if you don't win. <laughs> Very so, good. Yeah. And then the fact that you had two and that go with two. Oh, that was, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm patting my own back because I, you know, it's like a point in my career where I, that will never happen again. But yeah, it was like Sophie's Choice. I just, I was excited. I knew that there were two babies one was going to die and one was going to live, but hey, at least I got to have one baby. So what I also find very interesting about your career is that you've designed trailers, you yes. know, which one could argue, you know, is, uh, um, you know, uh, close to the earth, let's say. And then you've designed corporate jets, these magnificent yeah. Embraer yeah. private jets. So to go from low to high, talk to us about that. Well, it's all about intimate space, right? So if whether it's a camping trailer or a car interior, and we can get more on that, but as cars are evolving into autonomy, they're really about the interior space. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Okay. <laughs> uh, to, uh, to jets, you're creating a social space. So whether it's on the ground or in the air or on the freeway, um, it's about creating a space for people to connect and have a conversation or, or um, and get to know each other better. And so those are the things that I target. Uh, I love doing... So you, you start maybe uh, with, with people first. Because mm -hmm. sometimes I, I look at some of these designs, like back in the day, these, you know, kind of 
cool Harley Earl things and Bill Mitchell, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of GM design uh, revolution of the 50s and 60s. It doesn't seem like the driver was thought of first. It seems like the, you know, kind of the sleekness and the image of the car was first. I don't know if that's true or not. No, it's um, yes and no. I think um, I think there are pivot points in design. And I think um, when, so I believe that the social space of a car can affect people on a very cultural level, more than we realize because everybody's in these cars. Mm. But let, here's, a, here's an example, uh, bucket seats. So when the Mustang came out, it's kind of the first production car with mus- bucket seats, a uh, bench seat became totally passe and you know nobody has a bench seat. But what was lost was connection. Mm. Uh, when you're in a car with a bench seat, uh, you can, if you have, let's say you're with your, your wife or your girlfriend or a significant other and you have an argument, uh, people can't always say, I'm sorry, but they can uh, put their arm around each other, and that can be good enough. That repairs that divide in a bench seat. In a bucket seat, you can't do that. So basically, we can understand society through car seats. Well, I think we can save American marriages if we have if we have a if we bring back the bench seat. Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, but, all right, well, let's stay there for a second. So, yeah. how in, in now in this autonomous car revolution <laughs> yeah. that's happening now? Yeah. I mean, how would this affect affect car design? Yeah. So, you know, with the caveat that there there are certain there are, like any car design, there are certain things I can't talk about because mm-hmm. what I'm working, what I can say, you know, and things that I have written about uh, in different publications about. What I believe is happening in car design is that when you um, when you allow the car to drive, uh, you no longer have to face the same direction because you can talk to each other. Mm. And it's very natural for people. Obviously, it's very the only place that people don't face each other uh, when they're uh, communicating is in a car where someone's driving or on a TV soap opera where they're both facing the camera, right? Like nobody talks to the back of someone's head, right? But we do this in a car, which is very strange, right? If I suddenly turn around and face away from you, that'd be really weird. But uh, we accept that. So in the social space of cars changes when you can face each other because um, you what I notice is that you stop thinking about driving mm-hmm. and you start and you just start connecting in the way you would in any other social space. That's a very exciting thing for a car designer to, to, to come upon because we've been wanting to do that for years, but finally the technology is here that lets us do that. Really? And so what I think you'll see is uh, a real change in the way car de- interiors are designed because you there are proportional issues, right, of course, because you're now facing each other. Uh, but there's also a lot of opportunity for what do we do in this space? You know, what can we do? And mm-hmm. there's a lot of freedom there. And, you know, and that's, that gets back to this idea of the bench seat. Mm-hmm. Put your arm around somebody. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's love there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't describe it, but that's what it is. You mm-hmm. connect in this way that you couldn't before when you're all facing the same direction. You know, I think it's very fascinating about this is that there used to be, uh, when I would you know hear about, because I, I would always hear after the design was done, then they would share it with the agency. Mm-hmm. And we had a very close relationship with Nissan Design. It was, uh, and then ultimately with uh, Shiro Nakamura. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was really interesting. And the designers would kind of pitch the cars to us so we could turn that into communications. Mm-hmm. And um, what was fascinating is that the references, particularly on interior, interiors was always this is like a jet fighter yeah. so I'm wondering if the if you, we have to reorient or you guys who design cars are going to reorient and say this is sort of like a train like I wonder if your reference points yeah the, I think the reference points changes I don't know um as much so I would I think not the word train isn't probably one that would be as inspirational as much as um, a hotel room or a loft or a restaurant booth or these places where people connect and talk to each other and, mm. and connect a game table you know, when you're playing chess or you're or you're having a meal, you, these are reference points that become. Uh, how do you create a mood in a social space? Mm. You're right. Um, I I feel like uh, you know, since I've been in car design, uh, 
you know, for 20 years now, that idea of this jet fighter has been such a sort of a, uh, kind of, a, it's a beat it's horse. It's a trope. It's a yeah, convention. It's a, right. You know, we're going to get this cockpit and it's going to grab and, it's, you know, you're going to have the steering wheel that's very aggressive and very angry. And, you know, and I, and I, what I, I hope, you know, because just, I mean, I do car design because I love it and I hope that cars are happy. I hope that this, uh, there's a lot more optimism coming in car design because I, it, it, it if you create a happy space, uh, I believe people can be happier. If you create a mean car, well, then people are going to be mean. Like, you know, I've always thought, like, what is the deal with, you know, these minivans that are so angry <laughs> when they come off the assembly? Like, like, did somebody kill their puppy or something when they were, when they were, mad? like, why are they so, why is a Honda Odyssey so mad, you know, at a Nissan Quest when both of those could be, you know, they're, they're just trying to get groceries faster than each other? Like, I like this idea that cars uh, can become happier, you know. I, th- I think the people who design the minivans have, you know, parental issues. <laughs> and maybe, maybe, maybe that's what's maybe happening. that's maybe that's why they're so mad. I don't know. But I, my, what, what I'm saying with this is, I hope and I see that cars uh, hopefully are becoming more optimistic. I, I do believe that's uh, yeah. happening. Interesting. So. Well, one other uh, question for you on autonomous. I mean, do we need a steering wheel? I mean, yeah. Those, you know, again, um, you know, I think that the the best way to answer that question is um, there are two types of driving. Uh, there's driving that you do because you want to and driving that you do, that you have to, that's commuting. Now, taking a drive is a very human thing. It's cathartic. We like it. I don't think um, anybody's coming to take the steering wheel away Mm -hmm. from people. Um, But if you really think about it, autonomous cars have already been here. Um, There's really no mechanical connection in a modern car between the steering wheel and the car. You really Mm -hmm. just have the perception of control. Hmm. You're a director of operations. You're telling the car, I want to stop. I want to turn left. I want to panic stop. And the computer is really doing all of that stuff, right? So we as a generation who've uh, grown up having a steering wheel in our hands, we don't want to give that up Hmm. yet. But I do believe that the kids born today, they won't care. Hmm. They won't think about it. And so I do believe that they'll be driving that you do yourself for a long time Hmm. to come. But But this idea of commuting is a different thing. It's mm. really about going someplace and what do you, what can you do when you're commuting that you you couldn't do if you had the wheel in your hand. Mm. So I, 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 you know, I think when when people get a hold of a, a trend, they get very enthusiastic about it, all going this one direction. Right. But I don't believe it. I think it'll be both. Mm. It really. Yeah, does. I was always wondering why could I always love the the feel of the um, Atari joystick. Mm-hmm. You know, why could I you know <laughs> navigate the car with a joystick? Or, yeah, <laughs> I mean, or, or or you know, or just or with thought. <laughs> Who knows? With thought, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's 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 really fascinating. I, I hear this a lot, like like oh, I'd never I'd never have an, a self driving car, but you know, ABS is an autonomous thing. There's no if you yeah. think about what ABS is, it's a it's a computer pausing and uh, pulsating the brakes faster than any human being really could. Hmm. So you are putting them on the brakes. You're really just telling a computer, I have to stop now. And the car's like, okay, let me help you stop right now by doing this with the brakes. And you haven't really done anything. So it's 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 already there and it's been there. And by the way, I think the way you phrase that, uh, "Let me help you," the, yeah. the car saying, "Let me help you," uh, the way Kit, you know, helped mm-hmm. uh, all those years ago in that show. But I do think that leads to your. I think to me, I would connect that to your optimism. Yeah, uh, you know, I look, I look like um, inspiration uh, points for me are like Herbie the Love Bug. Mm. You know, like like that's um, that's a car that like is like a it's like a it's like a friend. Right. But it's a little mischievous. Right. It's not always going to, you know, it, it's like, um, you know, maybe, you know, it, it, there's some fun yeah. there. Right. And it should be fun. You know, the Beetle is not an angry car ever. It never has been. 
And so I, I love Herbie the Love Bug. That's a, that's a real inspiration vehicle for me. And I, I mean, I don't really mean the Volkswagen Beetle. I mean that particular right. one that's alive. The, the old number 53. 53, right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so yeah. just the, you know, maybe one more car question, and then I want to move to some other, some other pieces for you here. Um, on this uh, Motor City Masters show, uh, I thought what was interesting is that uh, Chevrolet mm-hmm. was the sponsor. So w- when you did the process of the show and stuff, was there, did it, feel weird to design for Chevy was it was it obvious what their design cues were was I mean oh, that's a great question like kind of what, like, what was the relationship of the brand to what you were actually making sure well that's a great question so well you know I think you have to remember so when I did that show which was now a couple of years ago I had been out of Nissan for about six seven years anyway so at that time I've done different work for different clients and that's therein lies sort of the interesting part of design mm. and you know when you work for one brand for a long time uh, you you learn a way of doing things, right? And I've had to learn after leaving that that um, you really need to understand each client and what they want and how to uh, either uh, design in the parameters or evolve it. You need to know the rules in order to break them, right? right? So you need to know their brand in order to take it in a new direction. We call that Picasso theory. You know, exactly. Picasso mastered everything yes. so he could break it. So you could break it. Yeah. And so working with a brand like Chevrolet, uh, which I had, I you know, never worked with an American car company before mm. in, in my career. It was fascinating to to try to take, and, and I have to remember, we weren't designing from scratch cars anyway. Mm. We were just modifying cars. Right. So how do you take Suburban and make it into, you know, something that it's never been before? Mm. That was sort of the, the language that we played with. So um, I, I thought it was really fun because you're getting, we got to get into sort of like, like, let's talk about it this way. It's really easy for a designer to sort of uh, grab onto these, that, that word trope that uses mm-hmm. a great word. You grab onto these things and then you just do these things and you and, and a lot of designers would, would sort of be a, f- maybe not like the idea of, of going down market and getting dirty with some of the trends of like, you know, pimp my ride type aesthetic, right? right? These right. Lower. But if you can let go of that sort of hierarchy we have in our mind that these designers that work with, you know, like SEMA or the customizing thing are, are not the same level we are that do the actual cars. Mm-hmm. Well, if you get in there, you can do some really cool stuff if you break through that. And so that's what we did. You know, we you had OEM level car designers basically doing aftermarket work. Mm. And we had so much fun because we we did things from the perspective of an OEM designer and, and did things, you know, hopefully some really cool new stuff. Yeah, interesting. It was fun. So I want to talk about one of your other uh, very famous designs, not a car design, not a plane design, uh, but the um, the throne for Katy Perry. Oh, for, <laughs> for, for, for Katy so, Perry's Roar video. Yeah, okay, so I, I should clarify, I, I contributed to and worked with, uh, the, as any music video is a, is a, is a collaborative pro- uh, project. Uh, the designer, the lead designer on that was named Terry Whitaker. I love her. Uh, she's actually, oddly, uh, Brenda Parkin, who's a, a Nissan designer, her sister. That's oh. how I know her. So uh, putting that out there. Uh, the thing that was fascinating about working in that environment was, it, whereas cars uh, take a very long time to develop, this throne, uh, you know, this is, you have minutes and hours and then it's filmed and then it comes out next week and then the pace of that mm. is so different where you know if you're going to sit there and draw something it's irrelevant by the time you're done with the sketch because you've already moved on uh, the story of the throne was this um, uh, there was a throne that was made uh, it was it was designed it was fabricated it was brought on set Katie saw it didn't like it did not blame her for not liking it because it wasn't right for the music video right. so on set 
in real time with the, you know Danny Lockwood, her creative and director, and, and the production crew, and Katie waiting. We had to redesign it. And when you're standing there with this, you know, you know, literally money disappearing and and the talent waiting, you just go into like, okay, what do we need? I don't know. Birds of Paradise. Where can we get Birds of Paradise? There's a pile of them over there. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Put them in, and you and all of a sudden you create this thing, and then like there's this big smile on her face. She, that's what she had in mind. And you're and you don't even really have time to think about that. You're collaborating with this. Right superstar you're just doing it right and so i like it because the the you know the whole day is like an adrenaline rush right and then you get done and you just fall into a pile and sleep and it's it's just so different from car design which i love as well but that takes you know years and mm-hmm. this was done in minutes so in some ways uh it sounds like uh like one of the best attributes you can have as a designer is to be empathetic Empathy is a great word. Yeah. Um, in fact, that's a really good word. Here, here's a story of that. So when I was working uh, with Volvo, they uh, Volvo Trucks, they sent me they sent me out into the field to live with the long haul truck drivers. Mm. Now I'm not a truck driver. I don't know anything about. It. I had all these romantic notions about like seeing America and like the sun rising and you know driving down the road with this truck driver and maybe we'd hold hands. I don't know. And like it was just going to be romantic. It was none of that. It was awful and it was amazing at the same time. It was like you get a load of meat and you have to race from El Paso or race from Nebraska to El Paso overnight and get it there. And what I so what I learned through that process was empathy for their lifestyle. That basically their lives are hard. And how can you design a space that makes it better for them? And so that's not something I had ever worked on before. But through that process of uh, living with, you know, what living with, let's say this, this the, the truck driver I had in my mind was like 300 pound man in a space no bigger than this tiny room we're in. And how do you make his environment better? Um, you know. Uh, not to belabor a point, but what, one of the things we came up with was a, we, at, at a meat rendering plant, you learn that they're stepping in mud, this is really gross, that's not water-based, but it's blood-based. Mm. And so they're dragging muddy, bloody shoes into their home. So why not give them a mudroom? I mean, it's that simple. So what we did is we created a mudroom for them uh, to put their shoes in. I mean, it seems so basic, but if you tell that to somebody in marketing or engineering, they'll be like, I don't want to pay for that. You have to show them why the drivers need this because they don't know what to do with their shoes and they're hanging them on the rearview mirrors when they're driving down the road. And so your Volvo truck has its shoes on it. So it's like this is the kind of thing where you can get things into production is by empathy. Interesting. Now, you listen, so you've worked with... uh, you know Carlos Ghosn, uh, yeah. you know major CEO of, of a Nissan, Renault, now Mitsubishi. Um, if you were, uh, if you were Carlos Ghosn, if you were running a car company uh, today, I mean, what would keep you up at night? Um, the changing business model. I think that the entire industry is on a paradigm shift. Um, I think we are moving away from. Uh, I think the technology. Okay, I think the technology is allowing everyday people to do things they never could before which means that the way the, the business model of making a little bit of money on a lot of cars is really changing. Mm. You know, you have things like Uber with service models that are maybe negating the need to have a car. That's really going to change. Why would you buy a minivan? Okay, we're really beating on minivans today, which is so sad because I kind of <laughs> love them. One of my favorite projects was uh, the on was, uh, you know, I, I loved working on Quest. That was one of my favorite projects. But let's just use minivans today. Uh, why would you buy a minivan if you really only need it two days a week and the rest of the time you want a sports car? Mm-hmm. Well, it, you know, the service industry is really changing all of that. Um, also, the, the, you know, I- I- if you look at it like um, Borders Books, uh, how they fell to Amazon mm-hmm. or Blockbuster Video fell to Netflix. Uh, I think the car industry is 
possibly on the verge of one of these paradigm shifts where there are so much, so much technology and so many new things happening that if, if they're not prepared to be able to be uh, maneuverable quickly, you could see some car companies disappear hmm. in, in the next, next coming years. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I remember a few years ago when uh, actually uh, when when Mr. Ghosn did uh, the um, uh, his keynote speech to uh, the L.A. Motor Show, uh, the topic of the speech was fascinating, it, and it was this notion that kids today are more fascinated by phones, by the iPhone, mm-hmm. than by cars. You know, and uh, and I don't know. If, do, do you see that tension? The the, um, the fetish for uh, sort of digital objects? Yeah, I think if you really break it down, what is it that they're uh, excited about in the object? And I think it's really about connecting, right, with other people somewhere, more than you could just in one space. So, you know, for, um, I I think that that's that's a very current way to look at it, and I, I, I think that's true. I think, though, that there is a, there is life beyond the phone, if you really get to the human connection. What happens when, uh, so right now, like let's look. Okay, let's look at it like this, like this way. Take the CB radio. All right, that was really about connecting as well, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, and then uh, you know, phone came in, and, and oh, by the way, what was your handle? Uh, the boot. The boot. I was Cracker Jack. Uh, you have you grew up with a handle? I, I, so, I love CB radios. Oh my gosh, that's I didn't know that. So it was the precursor to my podcasting career. Yeah, it was the precursor to Facebook. It was the way people. We, so I grew that's up. That's right. Oh, I love that. It was Facebook of the '70s. So I grew up just as an aside. I grew up in Prescott, Arizona, redneck. I, I should talk like this because that is. Arizona, and then we call it Arabagadazona. That's how I grew up. We didn't have phones in my house. We had CB radios, and nobody in my—I didn't know my name was Brian until I was ten. I was the boot. When my mom wanted to serve dinner, she would get on the CB radio, call my dad, and say, "You better come and get it. Throw, throw it out." And they would find each other this way. I mean, this is—you know—it's pretty redneck, but this is a beautiful thing, and and it leads into our story that it was about connecting, and it was about technology and allowing people to connect in a very simple way. So we have this very uh, unusual period now where everybody's uh, and I'm uh, you, you can't your listeners can't see but I'm looking at my hand which is a very strange way to connect with other mm. people right nobody mm. if you walk around looking at your hand that's very strange but tech if you deconstruct the phone which technology is allowing by you know the cloud where every information is everywhere um, then imagine a world where you don't have to look at your hand to have the same information that let's say you and I are talking and either you know through contact lenses or retinal or any other technology uh, you're being prompted about like my Facebook page and it's saying hey you know Brian loves bowling I don't really but let's like, mm-hmm. say you say that mm-hmm. ask him some questions well all of a sudden you have a way to communicate mm-hmm. with some information that you didn't have before that you don't need to look at your hand so I believe the kids that are born today will look at the hand holding phone generation in the same way that you and I would look at like an 8 track tape like oh that's oh that's so silly you're still using your hand like you know those kids will say that about the kids that are young today they will laugh at them when they're grandparents and they'll laugh at them like oh that's you know that's a really silly thing you're still using your hand and I believe we will be beyond the phone eventually well by the way on that 8 track tape would be the song Convoy Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> and, uh, now, interestingly enough, you mentioned that, that uh, Toyota Corolla kind of transformed your... Tercel. Tercel. Yes. Kind of transformed, uh, which I love your uh, <laughs> Japanese car fetish, which yes. is exactly what I want to talk to you about. So okay. one of the passions you have now is kind of transforming these, I don't know, oddly loved cars. I mean, why don't you talk about a few of these? I mean, I just saw you posted something on a Nissan Silvia. Yes. I, I got know, like a 1972 Silvia. I don't know. These, I mean, My holy grail car. <laughs> these were the quirkiest cars I've ever seen. Yeah. Well, you know, I, again, coming from a very modest background, um, I really, you know, I loved these 
very benign, happy cars like the Datsun V210 Honeybee mm. or the Toyota Corolla or, uh, you know, um, even like the um, Toyota Camry, the first one. What um, I love about these cars is, first of all, they were, so they're part of my childhood in the same way like a person who is 60 or 70, the 57 Chevy was part of their childhood, so there's that. But maybe even beyond that, um, they were the cars of everyday life. They were everywhere, and now they're all gone. Mm. And so um, they're like a piece of the fabric of everyday life, and I like to, and, and a lot of those pieces of fabric have been forgotten, and I like to restore them. Uh, the Camry, I, uh, the car I uh, just kind of finished working on is a is a is a is a first generation Toyota Camry, and I love that car because it changed the American landscape mm. of the family sedan. You know, uh, not only was it happy and filled with light, which cars hadn't mm. been, but it offered so much more than anything at that time, and so that's an important car to me. It's, mm. it's a, it's, but that's the very heady stuff. The, the the emotional side, you know, you talk about this Datsun's Nissan Silvia. Um, that was a car that came over from Japan and was a beautifully styled car with some really delicate, beautiful surfaces. I mean, there's so much muscular tension in this car that, like, like it looks like it's going to explode. But because it got federally mandated giant bumpers in this country, it was rejected because it looked like a sea creature. It just all of the tension was you couldn't see it past the bumpers. So I've always had a I've always felt like this car really got a bad rap. And I've always wanted to find one, you know, like in perfect shape. I, I found one. It's not perfect, but it has 20,000 miles on it. I, it's worth uh, restoring. So and, and you do it physically. Like, you know how to do this stuff with your hands. Some of it. Yeah, I do. I actually, well, so I, I learned doing that on the TV show. I don't know what any of the tools are called, but I know how to use them. The sparky thing is one. And the, <laughs> you know, I know how to do it. Um, some things are, you know, I'm really at heart a designer. So certain things that are beyond me, uh, I won't do. But if it's something like a cracked dashboard, mm. I'll go find a new dashboard and take the dash out myself. And, That's and with some friends. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. All right, so let's talk a little bit about your journey because, again, you've, you've, you know, you've come to this point in your life where you know, you've got a really uh, fascinating life. You've had a lot of successes. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, you like you said, you dropped out of ASU. I mean, tell I us did. your story a little bit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, um, dumb and lucky. That's what I got. It's a great, it's a great uh, philosophy. No, um, I was uh, at Arizona State studying architecture. I really wanted to be a car designer. I knew that from a young age. So not an architect. No, no, no. I mean, maybe now it would be, it'd be fun to do a building. But at the time, I, I really wanted to be a car designer as a kid. I knew that from a young age. I didn't know what it was. I knew that there were cars on the road and that people made them, so there has to be a job, right? Mm -hmm. To me, it was a logic. I was at Arizona State. A long story short, I, I, I went to see my counselor and said, I want to be a car designer. How do I – you don't offer that here. Where can I go? And he uh, he just looked at me like, you know, this – you know, kind of gave me this very sort of pandering speech about, well, that's a – you know, that's a pipe dream sign. You know, go back to your desk and draw your buildings. You know, you'll you'll outgrow that. And I was so uh, kind of pissed off that I I dropped out of Arizona mm. State and I um I moved to France mm. um on a little like uh, a little program you can go over there. Mm. Um, and France immediately went on strike, so the program was gone, and I was on my own. And I met a guy in a bar, and uh, I didn't speak French, but I could communicate enough that I didn't have anywhere to live. And he let me live in his camping trailer outside mm. of his garage. And I lived in that trailer for a year, and I would sneak onto trains and go to car studios all over Europe. Um, and um, I found myself at every car studio. Of course, nobody would let me in until I got to Fiat in Torino, Italy. And the design director at the time was American named Peter Davis, and he saw me. Hmm. And basically, he told me how to be a car designer. Hmm. He told me where to go to school. Now, it's younger, younger listeners won't probably get this, that you couldn't Google stuff then. Right. Today you could be like, how to be a car designer, type it in, you have the answer. You know, In my in, day, we had to go to France yes. and live in a trailer. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and, and it was uphill both ways. Yes, no, it, it was exactly like that. And I'm kind of glad I didn't have that information because I got this, you know, I got this whole aesthetic out of this, right? And um, anyway, long story short, I just did what he said. Mm. I just, I went to the school, school he recommended and and, uh, and, I, and I was... Wait, wait, which school? So I started, well, so I started at our art center in Geneva, which mm. was the Switzerland campus, but it, again, crazy route. It closed my first week. Uh, so I, w- I, w- I didn't have school. So I went to CCS in Detroit, uh, and I, grad- I did four years at college in Detroit, and uh, straight to Nissan after that. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And then before that, like, what was the first thing you ever designed? Well, the very cur- first car I ever worked on, I had an internship at Citroën mm-hmm. in France. Uh, I really thought I was going to work. I, I went into I went to France because I was like, I'm going to go to France and be a car designer. I love uh, those uh, Citroën uh, SM. That, SM. Uh, Maserati <sighs> partnership. So beautiful. Love the, that. The Sylvia is very, that I was just talking mm-hmm. about is very inspired by that car. Uh-huh. Oh, I can see that now. Yeah. yeah. So see, French and yeah. Japanese have a lot of admiration for each other. You don't think of it, but it yeah. really works. Uh, they share a lot of values. Huh. Anyway, um, the uh, I forgot what the question was. Uh, what was the first thing you did? Oh, the first thing I ever worked but, on. but even before a car. I mean, obviously yeah. something in your life, right? Well, you were doing something. Well, there. the Nest trailer. The one that you, so I never finished that story, but you you called me and told, so right. I drew that trailer my entire life. Um, huh. I, after I designed it for, I'll just tell the story, finish the story. Yeah, go for it. Um, after I designed it for um, the Nest, the company, um, I you know, it had some work with startups, and I know they don't always succeed. Right. But if you create something, you have something. Mm. So I designed it, and I designed it uh, with enough Airstream DNA that it could be an Airstream. And then it started to fail. Uh, and so I went and had dinner with Bob Wheeler, president of Airstream. Mm-hmm. They, at that time, they were now looking to buy a composite trailer company. And I was like, uh, can I please connect these dots? Buy this. Don't buy that other company. Buy this. This one's designed to be an Airstream. Anyway, and I didn't say it that, that shrill, but I was like, in my mind, I was like, why don't you know, do it? <laughs> anyway, long story short, they, uh, they did. So that's how Nesp has become an Airstream, is that uh, Bob and uh, the company, they, they, they saw the value in it, and it, they bought the company. So it was kind of your first dream, really. Yeah. No, it's, it, I have to say, like, I've been a car designer for 20 years, but the, the Nest is the thing I'm most proud of. It's, uh, it's, it's been a lifelong thing I've wanted to create. Uh, I, this is an interesting question for you. If you weren't a designer, mm-hmm. you know, oh. like, what would you do? QVC host. <laughs> <laughs> and, and why is that? It's just so much fun. I products. love you like products, I guess. Yeah, but I love I love um, I love people, and I think that it just I just think whenever I, I'm addicted to those shows, the shopping, I don't ever buy anything. I just watch the host, and I just think it looks like so much fun to like you know they they have so much enthusiasm about this thing they're talking about and they tell their stories. I I don't know. I always thought if I wasn't a car designer, I would be a host on a on a QVC network. <laughs> I don't know why. Very good. Now, one of, one of the things we do here is uh, you know, a lot of people like you have, they have their nest. They have their dream. They have, uh, you know, their white whale they're going for. Um, you know, it's Friday today. Like, what should someone do Monday? Like, how does someone make a dream happen? How do mm-hmm. they take the thing that they, you know, want to disrupt in the world and make it happen? Like, what advice would you give? You have to get off the train. Um, you know, when I was at Arizona State, you know, it's easy to look back now and th- say, well, I did this and this and this and this led car design, but it was, those options weren't laid out for me. It was really about, I was very frustrated at Arizona State uh, because I really wanted this thing that I couldn't have. And everything around me was telling me, you can't have this. I mean, and what you have to do is get off the train. You have to, you have to, you have to say, okay, I see where this is going. I'm going to be an architect if I go this route. I don't want that. Mm-hmm. And if I don't stop, it's only going to get more complex. I'm going to get married and have a debt and a mortgage. I don't want any of that stuff. So I, you have to get off the train. I think if you want to do something, um, we, we are our own worst 
uh, enemies when we give our own limits to ourselves. You know, you think about that. Like I hear all the time from students, I want to be a car designer, but those schools are so expensive. I can't, mm. you know, I can't afford it. I couldn't afford it. <laughs> I couldn't. I racked up a massive debt when I was at, at uh, those, that school. Mm. But you know what? When I left Nissan, it all worked out. I, uh, it just happened to be when I left Nissan was when they were offering the severance packages. So I got my school paid for. It, my point with that story is that it, if you want to do it, don't worry about the logic. Don't worry about all the no. Find the little teeny piece of yes and just grab it and do it anyway because it will work out. And that and I think that's what separates people from people who wanted to do and people who did do. And so that's just, I guess, get off the train and grab the little piece of yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's great. Don't worry about the no. Uh, grab that piece of yes. Yeah. I don't know if we can say anything better than that. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. That's great. Thanks, Brian. We oh, appreciate I'm, it. As my grandpa always said, I'm proud to be here. So thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast brought to you by TBWA Shy Day New York. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashyatny.tumblr.com 